Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2, a conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. Today, for this episode of the College Commons podcast, we have the pleasure of conversing with Dr. Melvin Connor, who is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Anthropology and of Neuroscience and Behavioral Biology at Emory University. He's a prolific writer featured in, among other outlets, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and he contributed substantially in developing the concept of a paleolithic diet and its impact on health. Dr. Connor, thank you for joining us on the College Commons podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. So I would like to um, pick up on some of the articles you've written both online and in print and start with one that you wrote last year in the Wall Street Journal titled, in tough times, religion can offer a sturdy shelter. And the, the title admittedly kind of says it all. The, the conclusion uh, based on this study is that religion clearly has benefits in reducing certain kinds of stress. But I wonder if you can, even if it's just speculation, but if you can opine about why is it that religion can afford these benefits? If you look at illness across the board, there is definitely a psychological component. There was an old study that showed recovery from surgery. If you, if you have two patients per room, the patient near the window recovers a little faster. Hmm. There, are just, there are just so many uh, uh, ways in which a, a comforting word, uh, you know, the bedside manner, the, the, I, I've, I've seen uh, surgeons change the entire uh, state of mind of a patient with three minutes of kind words and interaction at the bedside. Some doctors don't do it because they think it's going to take too much time, and and they certainly, uh, you know, they don't get paid for that kind of time. But <laughs> but but um, but it can it can make a huge difference. And that that uh, Wall Street Journal piece, it was very hard for me to uh, to pare down. The list of studies that I mentioned uh, in that in that little six hundred word piece because there were so many, uh, uh, you know, there were, there were, and there was from so many different countries. So you know, there was one from Saudi Arabia about about kidney dialysis patients and how hmm. you know how um, you know their commitment. Some of them had a greater commitment to Islam and and did, did better with the stresses of dialysis. There was one about uh, about the stresses of racism and African American right, middle aged women. One, yeah. There, there, um, there was one in Canada, one in Japan. I, I, I mean, Japan, Japan is not a very religious country anymore, and and yet uh, the religious dimensions seem to have positive effect on uh, on uh, common chronic disease. So it's it's just just study after study, and you can argue about. What the element of of, of positive in, impact is? You know, right. people say, right. "Oh, it's just church going." They could also be going to a bowling league and and oh, the sense well, of community, community would, and regularity, would, yeah, and... plus 
Plus, uh, somebody says, what's that thing on your face? And uh, well, he catches maybe it you should go to the doctor or you're not looking well. Because you know, they know you. There, there uh, is support for both the impact of community and the impact of, of faith itself. and, and uh, Both at the psychological and communitarian level. Yeah. So it's, it basically uh, correlates faith, belief, with some core set of of, of positive assumptions about destiny or purpose or something that, that, that trickle down bottom line into some kind of positive psychological mindset. Yeah, I think, I think that's well said. I, I, I think it's, it's a sense of purpose and meaning in life uh, can make the difference between uh, survival and, and uh, failure to survive um, in, in, a, in a person who's ill. And and I think there's there's something else that there's there's a very important dimension that of religion and, and faith that um, the scientists and philosophers who are trying to eliminate religion uh, uh, don't don't get uh, as far as I can see they don't get it at all and that is it's it's companionship uh, you're never alone mm. if you believe that that there's meaning to every action that you take if you believe that everything you do is observed mm. and I think it, it, it really addresses uh, the loneliness that a lot of people feel, feel. The, the existential loneliness of going existential through life existential loneliness right would, yeah. you, would you agree that um, of all the faith communities the, the, the uh, traditionally um, strong faith communities in this country that Jews are the most likely to simultaneously be a member of a community and nevertheless not necessarily believe that there is a companion on their journey, a, a divine presence? I don't know if I want to you know, compare the, the Jews to all other faiths on that. I think uh, that that's true of, of uh, a lot of Jews. And, and uh, I think it's probably true of a lot of mainstream Protestants in America and you know people have have the capacity to compartmentalize things in their minds to to a great extent uh, and Rabbi Middleman was was quoting a study which I, I wasn't familiar with but which said that 85 percent of Jews would would let science trump Judaism Religion, if yeah. if there were a conflict uh, but um, for most people, I, I think there's not a conflict because they're not exactly using the same parts of their mind f for science as, as they are for, for religion or, um, or Judaism. In a way, it's, it's, it's like a child who grows up bilingual mm -hmm. and doesn't mix, up mix the, the, language. the languages right. hardly at all. And... and People talk about code switching, code and, switching just, yeah. and so I've heard you know many people say, and I think it was it was true of me when I was religious that uh, that I could I could have uh, I could have code switching I could I could have part of my mind that I would enter, and, and in a way I, I still do when I when I go to services on, on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and even in the services that we had yesterday and today here I, I you know, really. Uh, Entered into uh, a kind of altered state through 
through the music, the familiarity yeah. of, the, like of the prayers. It's like a suspension of disbelief that, that literature that. can also bring you to. Absolutely, a suspension of disbelief. And I think, I think that, uh, that that analogy uh, you just made is, is, works for me very well. That, that there's something in, in, uh, in, in the experience of Jewish prayer. I just don't care uh, uh, about testing right, right. Uh, uh, those, uh, those experiences against some, some experimental Because they have intrinsic standard. value that suffices. I don't want to say it's the same as reading Shakespeare or, or watching Shakespeare uh, or going to the Getty and seeing the great paintings there. Um, because for me, it, it reconnects me to the time in my life when I really did have faith, and I, I would never say that I have faith in Shakespeare or Rembrandt the way I, right, uh, I right. did once in in uh, in the Jewish God uh, and the Torah. But but there's a there's a sacred quality in my mind that comes from um, the weight of tradition, the countless generations, the uh, uh, Dor that have that this um, these texts have passed through. My grandfather, my my right. photo of my father that I have uh, uh, in his uh, short pants and and talit on the day of his bar mitzvah, uh, and and um, you know it's personal, um, but also um, there is uh, you know this morning when the Torah was carried around and I took the you know uh, my talit and and touched it and kissed it. Uh, uh, I wouldn't do that with Shakespeare. There, there, there's a, a quality to the transgenerational passing on of this text and other Jewish texts that makes it almost more sacred to me with every passing generation. Yeah, an and accumulation of sanctity. The accumulation of sanctity. I never thought of that expression, but I like it a lot. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to launch into the question of of the relationship between men and women. Uh, And I'm going to do an extended quote here with your permission. You say, quote, or you refer to studies and, and, and you conclude the following. Across many species, they pointed out, these are the scholars whom you cited, quote, males exploit strength and aggressiveness against other males to ensure reproductive success. Once they secure a sought-after female, however, the strategy changes. Males must entreat or cajole females into accepting their own small contribution to the process of reproduction. But what if these efforts fail? Unfortunately, as primatologist Barbara Smuts and her father Robert W. Smuts have shown in the periodical Advances in the Study of Behavior, 
male primates may resort to threats and then force. I read this to mean, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong and elaborate if I'm right, I took this to mean that in some measure, to the degree we're generalizing, and, and we appreciate that this is a generalization, and it does seem to boil down that domestic violence is basically sexual frustration of men. And that's what that's what I glean from this. Certainly, there's a lot of sexual frustration of of, of men, and uh, unfortunately, um, evolution has has produced a. Uh, an overlap between the circuits that govern in the brain that govern male sexuality and, and the circuits that govern aggression. There just have been too many situations uh, in the past when when aggression was successfully called into play by uh, by males whose genes then entered into our ancestors. It got rewarded somehow. effectively. Yes, that's right. And back if I back up to the beginning of my career, when I wrote the first uh, edition of, of a book called The Tangled Wing, Biological Constraints on the Human Spirit, uh, uh, um, it, it, it was in an era, uh, I was coming off of the 60s, where I was, I, I, I was a participant in the, uh, in the integration movement, in the anti-war uh, um, movement. I, I was at the I Have a Dream speech two days before my 17th birthday in defiance of my parents' express <laughs> uh, directives. Um, and, um, and I continued to be uh, uh, involved in, in demonstrations in the, uh, in the movement uh, for equality for minorities and equality for women. And, and, uh, and yet my, my research on human behavior, both in terms of my own direct research and 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 more importantly scholarship, uh, uh, such as you cited, was leading me to believe uh, things that that most of my friends in the movement uh, against segregation and the movement against war did not believe, namely that there are inherent biological tendencies in humans by, by, and biological constraints, which, as I put it near the end of that book, it, our best judgment tells us to reprehend. No. And, and um, what that meant, to, and by the way, in that same, that same ending portion of that book, I was citing uh, uh, Jewish texts. Uh, uh, I was explicitly going, going there, uh, uh, and I even ended one one argument with the words amen selah but i i realized that at the time that that those of us who were trying to bring more r the realities of biology more into behavioral and social science had more in common with uh, traditionally religious thinkers than we did with traditional social scientists hmm. because traditionally religious thinkers uh, have always thought that there were tendencies in humans that were very right. bad, and they thought and, they had to reprehend. And them. They thought they had to reprehend them and control them and and right. preach about them, and and they did it all the time. And and I, you know, I I, uh, I go back to um, uh, the story of Noah, Noah, uh, and and um, when God basically changes. God's mind uh, uh, and and says, I, I will never again destroy the world by 
flood because is it Yetzer Halev Adam Ra Minurav? Because the 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 tendency of the heart of of man is is evil from his youth, and I see uh, I see a deep truth in that. Uh, uh, you know, as an evolutionist, as a uh, uh, as a biological anthropologist. And I also know, I mean, I was raised with the idea that there's a struggle in us between the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. And, the evil and, inclination and the good and, inclination. And so um, I, think by, I think biology and evolution support that idea. And I think that uh, what makes us human is, uh, is we have some ability to, to, to think about it, to go meta on our, our right. impulses it's the, and, it's the consciousness, and on the, the self-awareness. struggle uh, between the good and the bad. And, and, and by the way, I, I'm not Mr. Clean. I'm a 72-year-old heterosexual man. I, I, you know, I have not done everything right with respect to, to women. I have, I have uh, been single twice in my life, uh, uh, at the beginning and then after my first wife's passing. And... Uh, you know, I know what it feels like to to have certain impulses and and uh, and have trouble controlling them. Uh, it, it is precisely because I think we have those impulses, and I'm willing to go so far as to call them instincts, uh, both for good and bad. Uh, and and that that I feel we have to know as much as possible about about the biological factors. Uh, about how the brain works, about how evolution uh, produces certain things in us, about what hormones do, about the differences between men and women that are not just uh, the result of upbringing and, and, and sexism and, and television, but are the result of partly of, of biological influences. And my friends on the left and, and also some colleagues in social sciences from the beginning of my career until now have been, been saying you're just encouraging the worst things by saying that it's evolved by saying that it's biologically right. they, they fear you they fear you're excusing it right and it's the opposite of what i'm doing and that's why i still feel an alliance with with religious thinkers because it's a it's a you know millennial uh, tradition of saying recognize the bad things in us right recognize right. the bad things in yourself Turn your gaze uh, inward on on what's in what's inside you that could do harm, and that's what gives you a better chance of of, of gaining control and, and doing good instead. You're also yeah you're 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 layering this with a moral layer as well. You're saying that right. the the edified element of the human spirit is not that it's good, but that it is willing to confront evil and it's willing to be responsible for it and then fight against it. Yes, and I think I think that also it doesn't depend on just uh, a conscience that comes out of nowhere, uh, or at least as far as I believe, it doesn't depend on a conscience that God put put in me. Uh, it, it, it it's something that uh, gradually emerged from the communal nature of human society, and that partly because of the evolution of language and, and, and tremendous intelligence. And, and one of the things that I think we know now uh, is that humans are uniquely uh, capable of, of putting ourselves in each other's minds. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the, the psychologist calls theory theory of mind. And, and uh, 
because we can do that, we can come to agreements that that ultimately uh, turn into moral systems. You don't assault my daughter. I don't. I won't assault yours. And then it becomes a, a, oh. a collective thing. And it's not, you know, it's not something. It's it becomes a rule, and it's not something that that chimpanzees can do. They but can, they do they, have collective. They do have a collective. Uh, uh, rules. Sense. And... They have. They have habits. They have. They have things that they can't. That they know they can't do because they, 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 it's too much of a risk, and it might even not just be a stronger individual who 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 punishes them, but there might be a coalition that punishes them uh, for certain things. Uh, but that's taken to you know just a much higher level in every human society. Well, then uh, that's what we should aim for for raising that level every raising time. Raising it more. All the time. Uh, all the time. Well, Dr. Connor, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we have a chance to do so again. I hope so, too. It's one of the best interviews I've ever had. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts, or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.